0: And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that that the Lord, all capital capital letters there, tells you in the Hebrew it's Yahweh, that Yahweh had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. And then she prays two prayers. May Yahweh kindly deal with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait for they are, until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand Of Yahweh has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and Ruth clung to her. And she said, see your daughter-in-law has gone back to your people and to her God's return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you for where you go I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May Yahweh do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the, one of, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me pleasured woman, Naomi. Call me bitter woman, Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. And Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Friends, brothers and sisters, what I've read to you from Romans and what I've read to you from Ruth, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O God, who takes all of our barrenness and brokenness and makes them part of your bigger, grander world rescue operation, enrich our hearts this day. Fill us up with hope, so that even if our faith is only hanging on by its splintering fingernails, we may find that we are in your hands and nothing and no one can ever take us from you. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide. If you didn't know, there's points and then there's subpoints, places for you to fill in some stuff and questions in the end for your care groups next week. My friends, we love stories, don't we? I find it interesting, if you look at Barnes and Noble for example, and you just look at all the fiction section, it's almost, it's, it's one of the largest sections in all of Barnes and Noble. And then if you add to that biographies, which are stories, and if you add to that several other histories, which are even more stories, you can tell we humans love stories. And so I'm sure you can, as I can, can sit and listen to your parents and your grandparents your aunt, your uncle, as they spin out some good yarns. Why is that? Well, because stories, the stories that we hear and the stories that we tell become little fantasies where we can transpose our own selves onto those stories and we can think through the actions and we can think through the consequences and we can ask, well, what would I have done there? In that situation right there, what what, what would I have responded? How would I have responded? And then we can begin to dream of those circumstances and yet not be forced to take the painful risks of living through them. And so here in the book of Ruth, there are three stories which weave together and then get folded up into the bigger story which is very surprising, but it pops out when you get to the end of Ruth, the bigger story. Now, you need to understand there is a chaotic backdrop to all four chapters of this little book. You already get the hint right there in verse 1, the very first words that I stopped reading as soon as I read those words to pause so you could collect your thoughts and go, now, why why are those words there? In the days when the judges rule. If you go back to the very last verse of Judges, if you've got your Bible open, you should be able to look at the next page probably. Look at the last verse, chapter 21, verse 25, and you will understand what that means. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Anarchy was at everybody's doorstep. There's no law, no justice, because it's might makes right and peace through superior firepower. That's the world of Ruth. Everything that happens in Ruth could go really, really bad because it's a bad era to live in. That's the chaotic backdrop to all four chapters of this book. But also, I think the words of a folk band, a band that's name is Judah and the Lion, that these words are a good theme for all three of the protagonists in Ruth. Sometimes you gotta get lost if you want to be found. Sometimes you gotta get lost if you want to be found. Let that little statement ring in your head as we work through this. First up then is Naomi. And I want you to notice that Naomi gets into the powerful story of God by her impoverishment. I mean, you should not miss it. I realize we do because of where we live in the 21st century, but everywhere else in the world and throughout all of history, they would have gotten this right up front. Naomi goes away, she goes off into the land of Moab. She is full, she has a husband and she has two boys. You know what that means? She's got family. She's also got safety, she's also got protection, and she's also got a retirement. So let that sit there for a moment. Because what happens when she goes away to Moab? What happens in the ten years that she lives in Moab? The first thing is, she loses a For all the grief of that, the loss of her husband, for all the emotional relational grief of that, She's also lost quite a bit of protection, and she's losing her social security for the future. Ah, but she's got two boys, okay, things are okay, she's got mail-on and chili-on, they'll take care of her, and then what happens? They die. Now somewhere in there, they got married to these two girls, these two gals, Oprah, Oprah uh, Orpah and Ruth. And now the two boys are dead. Now there is zero, zero protection. There's a loss of love, theres I mean, moms, what would you have felt if your kids died in front of your eyes? Right? There's all that grief, but then there's also no future. There's no financial future for them. And now it's not just Naomi, now it's Naomi plus two other widows, Orpah and Ruth. She goes from fullness to barrenness in a very, very short period of time. In fact, that's how she'll put it when she gets down to verse 21, when she finally gets back to her hometown. I went away full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Don't call me Naomi. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has stood up as my my prosecuting attorney and has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She is impoverished. She went out full. She comes back barren and empty. The road before her became immediately dark. And the light, what little glimmer of light that looked like it was down at the end of the tunnel, was actually an oncoming freight train ready to mow her over. That's what she would have seen. And yet, Naomi didn't realize that her impoverishment, if you've read ahead in Ruth, you know where this is headed. That her impoverishment is actually the vehicle God will use to bring her into his story and the vehicle he will use to bring life. It's the very vehicle. Her impoverishment will be the very vehicle he uses to bring about life. Now, I tell you that to say, don't ever think of your circumstances being so dark, so bleak, that they somehow impoverish or disempower God. He can take whatever brokenness, whatever barrenness, whatever bare-boneness we're down to. And he can do amazing things with that. No matter how stinky or stressful, he can employ it for good. But notice that Naomi also gets into God's story His powerful story by complaining. And that's verses 11 through 13 and verses 20 and 21. I mean, notice how she talks to her two daughters-in-law. If you were to wait for me, it would be terrible. There's no way that I'm going to be able to do any of this because it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sakes, that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. She is calling God. She's saying, "He looks like my mortal enemy." She's complaining. And then you get down to verse 20 and 21, that's what she tells the women folk when she gets back home. When they ask her, "Is this Naomi?" she must have been really rough. I mean, looked rough because she'd been through the ringer. Is that Naomi? Don't call me blessed woman or pleasant woman. Call me what I am, bitter, bitter woman, Mara. Why? Because God, the Almighty, has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me and all the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She's complaining. And it gets her into God's story. Now, on the one hand, let's be honest, we don't like hearing others complain. You know what I mean? It does rake our nerves and it makes us all pucker up and we say kind of, if not out loud, we say under our breath to ourselves, why can't he just suck it up, right? Or something, very compassionate words, you know what I mean. But then on the other hand, we love to complain. We love to whine. How do I know? Because we do it all the time. It makes... People feel sorry for us. It's a tool we use. Sometimes it's an effective tool of manipulation to get our way. But when someone complains about God, something within us is repulsed and we immediately jerk into action to try and and fix them and get God off the hook. We think and probably have been told that it's unspiritual to complain about God and His providence. But my friends, the Bible is full, chock full of authentic complainers, complainers who are not after manipulation, like David, the sons of Korah, not the group, but I mean the guys that wrote the Psalms, right? Asaph, and many of the other Psalm writers, Job, Jeremiah, just go read Jeremiah. It's depressing. And he does a lot of complaining because it's a train wreck world he lives in. And then here's Naomi. It's almost as if God is actually encouraging real authentic, genuine complaining, which is why he makes sure that there is plenty of it being recorded in sacred scripture so that we can enter into it and we can use it, especially the Psalms. Anybody been in the Psalms class recently? Yeah. Why is that? Because in all truth, genuine, the genuine complainer like Naomi is one who takes God seriously. The genuine complainer like Naomi takes God seriously. Naomi complains because she believes. I mean, look at her prayer, verse 8 and 9. She's going to talk about being bitter in a few minutes, and yet she actually has the faith, as rickety as it may look and as bow-legged as it may look, she has the faith to pray for her daughters-in-law. May Yahweh deal kindly with you. Why would she say that? Because she believes the Lord is kind, may Yahweh do kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and as with me. And she goes on to pray, Yahweh, grant that you may find rest. Why would she pray that? Because she knows that this God is a God who does bring His people into rest. She believes in Him. So the reason why her complaining is an authentic complaining is because she takes God seriously. She believes. That the Almighty, God Almighty acts normally in fairness and tenderness. That He normally sustains His people. He normally cares for them. And yet, here she is. Splattered all over with the mud of mortality. The mud of mortality. She's lost all the guys in her family. Her motherly heart has broken over her boys. Her wifely heart's broken over Elimelech. And there goes all the safety and security and all that stuff as well. She's splattered all over with the mud of mortality. She is splattered all over with the muck of poverty. She is caked with barrenness. Why, it, none of it makes any sense. How could this God, she must be saying in her head, how could this God who rules and directs all happenings and events do this? He acts as if he's my mortal enemy. I mean, that's that language in verse 13, that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. That's that language, that He has risen up to testify against me as if He's the policeman on the stand who's caught me red-handed as if He's a prosecuting attorney. He testifies against me. He brought calamity upon me. He's acting like my mortal enemy. None of it makes sense. Do you get it? genuine complaining like Naomi's is in stark contrast stark contrast to Israel in the wilderness and the reason why Israel in the wilderness complained is because they despised God they didn't want him to rule over them they didn't want him I mean, God himself says it in Numbers 11, verses 19 and 20. If you're writing notes there, Numbers 11, verse 19 and 20. They walked around complaining, we don't have enough meat. We need more meat. We want meat. Meat, 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 meat. It just starts sound like, you know, the chipmunks or something. I don't know. And then God says, okay, I'll send you some meat. I'm going to send you not just a day's worth. I'm going to send you days upon days. You'll be eating meat a day. 10 days, two weeks, a whole month until it's coming out of your nose and your ears. And here's why he's going to do this. Because you have rejected Yahweh who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? Why do we have this God redeeming us? We don't want this Redeemer, right? That's their complaining. They've rejected God. They despise Him. There's a vast difference between Naomi's authentic complaining and Israel's faithless, faith-breaking complaining. And so Naomi takes God so seriously that her complaints get her into God's powerful story. Further, notice that she gets into God's powerful story with her bitterness and her pain, her pain and bitterness. It's really the whole story, Verse one, chapter 1, verse 1 to the end. Naomi gets into God's powerful story because God weaves her pain and weaves her bitterness into his grand plan and story. Because she takes God so seriously, God actually takes her seriously. God uses the emptiness of her life He uses her barrenness, he uses her brokenness, he uses her pain, and he takes it and he weaves it into his grander store. He uses her situation as as an occasion for demonstrating his own loving care for her. As you read through Ruth, and I hope you read through it this week, Look at how God keeps coming back to Naomi and how every chapter seems to end with God providing one more thing for Naomi over and over and over again. But then you get to the last chapter. So turn to the last chapter, chapter four. And so in the story, and we'll get more into this, Ruth actually ends up getting married. And in that situation, the man who marries Ruth is actually doing it probably out of love, but also because he's, being, he's, he's actually redeeming Naomi from debt. And she, he's also carrying on Naomi's husband's family name. So lots of details, I'll get to that in a little while. And so when Ruth finally conceives it as a child, that child actually becomes now Naomi's to carry on Elimelech, her husband's name, and to inherit all of his property. And so verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and and Yahweh gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be Yahweh who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. She's talking about the baby. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name and saying, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse. He was the father of David. My friend, sometimes you got to get lost if you want to be found. The darkness of her life becomes a shadowy, bleak backdrop and canvas upon which the Lord radiantly and brilliantly paints His loving picture, His love for Naomi, but His grander love even for His people and even for the world. God is still in the business of leading and loving and caring for His people. Now, my friends, just like Job, Naomi never gets an explanation of why. You don't ever see God sitting down with her and saying, Naomi, I'm so sorry about all you went through, but let me tell you what this was about. He never sits down and tells her the reason why. Just like he didn't ever tell Job, he lets you in on the secret. Thank God for the scriptures. But he never tells Naomi, he never tells Job. In fact, she will have long passed from the scene before the offspring of her old age, Obed, will bring forth the father of the king, Jesse, and then David. She will long be gone. She will never see where this is going. Through her barrenness, through her emptiness, just like Sarah's barrenness, just like Rebecca's barrenness, just like Hannah's barrenness, and in Luke 1, just like Elizabeth's barrenness, God does the most shocking and startling and surprising thing ever. Where there's no life, He brings life, and He brings legacy. Through Naomi's barrenness, God brings forth the family. That will be God's chosen vessel for over a thousand years through whom will come then the promised Son. Jesus Christ the Lord, the salvation, the life, the door into God's family. Romans chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. There was a German theologian, his name was, and I'm going to butcher his name, please forgive me, I'm telling you now. His name was Helmut Thickley. Thickley, I guess is how you pronounce it. He tells a story about being in Stuttgart when Stuttgart was bombed in World War II and the bombing was decimating and everybody lost so much and there was no place to really live, the destruction was so terrible. So he and his family had to relocate to a nearby village and so they had to pack up all the possessions they had left and they loaded them back in the back of one of these open bed van trucks, right? So there's no walls and all that stuff. So they put up in the back there this priceless, precious family heirloom. It was the china cabinet with the, with the expensive and precious china inside of it. And so they're taking off down the road. And as they get close to a train station, the road gets really, really bumpy. And all of a sudden, that china cabinet, as it is wont to do, wobbles. And it falls off. Guess what it did? Smash, right? Everything smashed. Well, helmet thickly, gets out of his trucks, turns it off, gets out, goes back there, looks at the, I mean, this is, this is our legacy, and it's just shattered everywhere, on top of everything else that's already happened in Stuttgart, ah, so he takes his foot and starts to sweep off everything so that the other trucks behind him would not get flat tires, and just at that moment, 200 yards in front of him, comes a bomb from a, from a U.S. bomber, and it lands and it explodes 200 yards away. And he realized at that moment, oh, if the china cabinet hadn't fallen out, I'd have been right there where that bomb was. Precious china smashed, but life preserved. Kind of a typical pattern with our good God. So my friends, what is it that God is wanting to teach us here? There's lots of things, but I have three. First off, my friends, God is on the scene. Even if the darkness of your situation suffocates your vision and life, God is on the scene. You know, putting this together, I'm thinking about several of you who have lost your wives, your husbands in just the last few years since even COVID and before. Think about Steve and Tina and Mandy. And sometimes things can just become so dark that your situation just snuffs the life out of you. It feels like, and it clouds your vision, and it clouds your life. You need to hear it again. God is on the scene. Run to Ruth and read again Naomi. And look what happens. And take heart. God is the hero of the story. The tension, the tension of Naomi's life in chapter 1 is contrasted with the deliverance and the joy of chapter 4. The one whom she thought was her mortal enemy or acted like her mortal enemy showed himself to be her greatest lover. But it took her darkest moments to bring her into the light of his loving splendor for her and for you and me to see. You might almost be tempted to think, possibly, that God wants all of his Naomi's to take note and to take hope. Whatever our situation, whatever our condition, we just don't know the whole story. We don't have the full picture. And yet God can can, and God does take up our broken, bitter lives and in His caring grace wraps them up in His own loving embrace but also wraps them up in His world rescue operation. This child that's now for Naomi is the father of Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so God is the hero even of our own little stories. If you didn't know, by the way, your story is really minuscule. When most of us die, probably won't be anybody remember us. Maybe a few of the kids, I hope. Grandkids, I hope. Nobody will remember you. It won't be in a history book anywhere. And yet God knows you. That's what Naomi's all about. God knows you and he... He's there and he wraps us up in the midst of all that and he draws us in his embrace and yet also he puts us into and makes us part of this grander, beautiful story of God's world rescue operation. God is the hero of our own little stories as well. And so that's where we must turn and that's where we must always turn to. As Paul puts it in Galatians 3, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's no slave or free, there's no male or female, you're all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. That rings my bell. If it didn't ring your bell, how about Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives Christ who lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I want to ask you, I've been asking you for almost two months, do you know this Jesus? Do you know this God who comes and pulls your little story and can pull it into his grander story and he delights to do it? Whoever calls in the name of the Lord Will be saved may this be the day secondly sometimes we've just got to become barren before god will produce abundance or as the singers say in that song sometimes you got to get lost if you want to be found because my friends that's what it looks like to follow jesus i love the fact that the westminster shorter catechism is so bold as to put these two questions and answers in there. Because they don't sell books in America. Wherein consists Christ's humiliation. Christ's humiliation consists in His being born and that on low condition made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life. Christ's humiliation, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. And then comes the next question. Wherein consists Christ's exaltation? Christ's exaltation consists in His rising again from the dead on the third day, body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair, no longer subject to misery, no longer subject to mortality. That was my addition to the catechism, by the way. But he rose from the dead on the third day, ascended to the Father's right hand and is coming again one day to judge the world in the last day. The point I'm getting or trying to get across is that following Jesus means we have to walk through the cross to get to the crown. We've got to go through the gore to get to the glory. It's just what it looks like to follow Jesus. We may walk through very dark times, very... Bleak times. We may end up getting lost so that we can be found. Thirdly, we too must come to take God seriously through the bleak and the blessed moments. We dishonor God when we strive to sugarcoat every pain and we try, strive to sugarcoat every bruise and every bleeding wound. How's it going? Oh, great. Baloney. Let me face it. There, there, there's going to be times, and there have, for some of you, already been these times, when you're tempted to feel as if God has become your mortal enemy. And what we need to do is we need to grab hold of things like the Psalms, with all the gusto and grief we can muster and pour ourselves out to the very God who seems maybe at the moment to be our enemy, but we know better. Our only hope, only only then can we find hope. Hope that this very One whom we know cares for and loves His children will finally act in our behalf and and will fill up our barrenness with the fullness of His tenderest love and mercy. Psalm 30 verse 5, which Neil read in our call to worship, is meaningful. I don't know why we make it so meaningless so often, but it is so packed with meaning. For His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 5, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And some of you, that's where your faith needs to run. Because when you're in the midst of it, sometimes you don't believe he cares for you. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Preacher, how do you know he cares for me? Look at his son, Jesus. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. I can say with utmost certainty, He cares for you. Let's pray. Almighty God who sees that we have no power in ourselves... We pray that you would come and work on us and defend us against all adversities which may happen to the body, but also rescue us from every evil thought that assaults our souls and our minds. Lord, thank you for the story of Naomi. Thank you in the midst of the darkness and the bleakness, you were there. And though captured in that moment, all she thought was you were acting like her mortal enemy, yet you were doing greater things than she could ever have imagined. And so, Lord God, may we run to you in faith and trust. I pray for any who are going through moments like Naomi. I think about our friend Thomas, his wife, Lorelei. And I mentioned in Sunday school this morning, Lord, I think of others who are here who have been through those dark moments. And there are some that they keep. people are keeping secret. I get it. I understand. But those who are going through times like Naomi went through. Oh, Lord, lift their hearts and lift their faces that they would get a glimmer of your love and your tenderness and that you really are caring for them for any here today who have never, ever come to Jesus, I pray that today would be the day. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.